Kazwichi. Hello and welcome to City Break St Petersburg, episode 3, in which, having told the story of Peter the Great himself last week, I would like today to focus on three buildings in the city which are very closely linked with him and where you can find traces of him. And they are the fortress over the other side of the river from the main city of St Petersburg, and within that, the church of St Peter and St Paul, which has become the Romanov family church, And then thirdly, his lovely summer palace, the splendiferous Peterhof, about 30 kilometres outside of the city. So all of that to come in today's episode. Let's start then with the fortress. Good place to start because that really was what Peter had built first when he first came up with the slightly crazy idea of building a city on the marshland overlooking the Baltic. If you're going to visit it today, you'll have to cross the Iomovsky Bridge to get to a place called, if my pronunciation is not letting me down, Sayachi Island. I've seen it described in guidebooks in English as Hare Island, so perhaps that's the Russian for Hare. And if you take that route, you'll enter the fortress via St Peter's Gate, which Peter himself had built to commemorate his victory over the Swedes. He did seem to keep finding ways of commemorating that. And once you get inside, you'll find a fortress with very solid walls. You'll find the cathedral. You'll find the infamous Trebetsky Bastion prison and a number of other museums. The first fortress, not the one you're looking at here, was started in 1703, which has become considered the founding date of the whole of the city. So a wooden construction was put up there and Peter personally supervised it. He'd just returned, of course, from Amsterdam and London, where he'd learnt all that stuff about building and he was going to see it put to good use. But not just by himself. He had 20,000 people men mainly, of course, brought over to be forced to help in the construction. So that was a mixture of Russian soldiers, Swedish prisoners of war, and he had labourers sent from all over Russia. They were very underprepared and under-equipped. An eyewitness has left us the words, quote, It is a fact worthy of astonishment that despite the great host of men, they carried earth for the fortress only in the skirts of their clothing or on their shoulders in small gunny sacks. And it goes without saying that they worked in terribly harsh conditions. The weather, the starvation, the accidents, the being worked to death, literally in some cases. But only three years later, in 1706, on an auspicious date, the 30th of May, which was in fact Peter's birthday, Peter surveyed the wooden fortress that had gone up and promptly laid the foundation stone for the new stone one that he was determined to have built next. So earth ramparts were replaced, stone bastions went up, the ones you can see today. Inner and outer walls were built 12 metres high and in some places, amazingly, up to 20 feet thick and the whole thing became a proper fortress. A place for artillery, an ammunition store, barracks for the Russian soldiers wasn't actually completed until the 1740s and the Swiss-Italian architect Domenico Trezzini had spent 28 years of his life on it by that stage. We've talked about the St Peter's Gate. There's a second entrance down by the water known as the Neva Gate. And that's the place where, in Peter's time, an annual ceremony took place called the Blessing of the Waters Ceremony, held really to mark the fact that in the spring, once the ice had finally melted, the waters were freed up and the boating and ship sailing season could begin. And a ceremony was held to mark this. And they took it very seriously. There would be a service in the cathedral first, the St Peter and Paul Cathedral. Then there would be a procession down to the landing stage at the Neva Gate. And a goblet of water would be fished out very ceremoniously 
and transported then by boat to the Winter Palace and presented to the Emperor. It's rumoured that if he was pleased with his offering, he would return the goblet full of silver and gold. And this became an annual day of celebration, so the fortress on that day would be open to the public. There were decorated boats all over the Neva. There was cannon fire. There were fireworks. And then, of course, on every other day of the year, everybody was sent away and it went back to being a proper fortress. Although, in fact, it's interesting to note that never has one single shot been fired from the fortress in anger. Never actually taken part in a battle, but it was often used for ceremonial purposes. So whenever there were celebrations, maybe Russia had had success somewhere, or there was a royal event, the birth of a baby, that sort of thing, then cannons would be fired from the fortress. And right up until today, there is one blank shot fired every noon from the Narishkin Bastion. If you keep your ears pricked around about 12, you can hear it all over the city, and you can know then that this tradition was begun in Peter's time, but continues to this day. Although no battles have been fought from the fortress, it does have a formidable reputation because it served over the centuries as a prison. The most feared prison, certainly in Russia, the Russian Bastille, if you like, and kept mainly for anybody charged with crimes against the state. It soon had a terrible and deserved reputation as a place of torture. It was, for example, in 1718, the place where Peter's own son Alexei and his followers were imprisoned because they were accused of conspiracy, and they were tortured to death here. The official version is that he, quote, died in his dungeon from apoplexy that befell him upon hearing the sentence of death passed on him by the Supreme Criminal Court. But in fact, it's known that he was very badly tortured, beaten repeatedly with a knout, even after he'd confessed because Peter wanted every ounce of information out of him. Over the years, thousands of prisoners have been held here. Amongst the well-known ones would be people like um, Dostoevsky, Gorky and Leon Trotsky, And just to give a flavour of some of the sorts of things that used to happen, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from books. The first one is from an account by André Rosen, who was one of the Decembrists, one of the group who tried to stage a coup in 1825 and were captured and brought here to the fortress and underwent something called a ceremony of military degradation where they were thoroughly shamed for what they'd done prior to being sent off to Siberia. He and the other Decembrists were marched in four groups into the middle of the fortress and lined up, and then this is what happened, quote, We were each called out, singly, according to the order of the categories. One by one we had to fall upon our knees, while an executioner broke our sword over our head, tore off our uniform, and cast the broken sword and the clothes onto the burning funeral pyre. He tells how this went on for over an hour, and then this is what happened next, quote, They made us put on striped dressing gowns, such as are worn in hospitals, and took us back to the fortress in the order in which we had left it. There had been no one to look at us, but at the gate a crowd pressed round. As we were taken back, the gibbet on the crownwork rampart was awaiting its victims, but no one was to be observed nearby. We turned our eyes towards it, and prayed that God would grant an easy death to our companions. I was taken to the cell in the crownwork curtain, number 14, in which Konrad Vielev had passed his last night on this earth. About 25 years after that, in 1849, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the author, was subjected to a mock execution again in this very spot in the fortress. And we can hear about that using an extract from a book called Dostoevsky, His Life and Work by Ronald Hingley. 
Dostoevsky and others had been accused of plotting to write anti-government articles and they were brought to the fortress and were to be executed three at a time. They'd been dressed in white shrouds and were lined up awaiting their fate when the following happened. Quote, the first victims were each secured to a post. Their arms were bound behind their backs by the sleeves and the hoods were pulled over their faces. At the word of command, three guards' detachments took aim at almost point-blank range and the order to fire was instantly expected. But then an aide-de-camp galloped across the square bearing a sealed packet. A drum roll halted the proceedings and the condemned men heard the presiding general laboriously intone the last-minute commutation of their sentences, most to periods of katorga, Siberian hard labour and exile. Two days later, the political criminal and future great novelist, his ankles secured by the customary fetters, had begun his 2,000-mile journey to a new life as a convict at Omsk in Siberia. I think it's good to try and bear some of that in mind when you're walking round the fortress today because nowadays it's really day-out territory. There's lots of families and people eating ice creams and you can forget the horror of the place if you aren't careful. So, what else is there to see in the fortress? I would definitely recommend walking past the Monument of Peter the Great. It was only put up in 1991, but rather spookily, it was made from the cast of a waxwork figure, which itself had been made from the death mask taken by the artist Rastrelli just after Peter died. So when you look at it, you really are looking at something like what he really looked like. There are a number of museums you could visit, the Engineer's House, for example, and the Mint but I think the place which I definitely wouldn't miss under any circumstances is the cathedral right in the middle of St Peter and St Paul. Interesting to note that way back in 1703, so just as the fortress was being thought about, a small wooden church was built on this site, so alongside the fortress the church came exactly at the same time. By 1712 they were beginning to replace the wooden church with a masonry cathedral on exactly the same site. It wasn't consecrated until 1733, which was several years after Peter's death, but it became from that time onwards the official court cathedral. Today it really serves as a sort of memorial to Romanov history, because all the Tsars since Peter the Great, bar one, Peter the Second in fact, are buried here. And that includes the last Tsar, Nicholas II, and his wife and children, whose remains were moved here in 1998. You can see the white marble sarcophagi containing their remains in the St Catherine's Chapel, which is at the back of the cathedral, to the right of the main entrance. As soon as you go into the cathedral, especially if it's not the first one that you visit in St Petersburg, I think you'll be struck by the fact that it's very different from all the other cathedrals in the city, which are very much Russian Orthodox cathedrals. This one, in keeping with Peter's idea of wanting to ape Western Europe, is Baroque in style glittering chandeliers, Corinthian columns, pink, green and gold. I thought it was stunningly beautiful. The building itself, of course, has become quite a symbol of the city. Its multi-tiered bell tower can be seen from across the river from many places in St Petersburg, that golden spire reaching up into the sky, topped by a cross and a weather vane in the form of a flying angel. The bells in the bell tower almost tell a potted version of Russian history, so they first rang out in 1858. They used to play tunes like the church anthem, How Glorious, and God Save the Tsar. And in 1917, they fell silent. Nobody wanted to save the Tsar anymore. But they started ringing again in 1952, playing the Soviet anthem. And from 2002, when they were restored, they've begun on occasions to ring the old songs again sometimes.
The inside of the cathedral is full of frescoes and gilded mouldings and pillars, but according to its own guidebook, quote, the chief adornment of the St Peter and Paul Cathedral is the carved and gilded iconostasis and the canopy above the altar, a gift from Peter the Great and his wife Catherine I. And sure enough, it is quite a thing. Right in the centre, triumphal arch 12 metres high, 43 icons all dripping in gold, built in the 1720s to a plan devised by Peter himself, no less, central icons, of course, of himself and his wife, and then a mix of Russian nobles, the apostles, saints, often saints after whom his own relatives had been named, they're all there. When you see the pulpit, you might like to remember that when it was built, it was described as something, quote, new and quite out of the ordinary. And that was because traditionally, Russian Orthodox services didn't have a sermon. I think, again, Peter wanted to do what the Westerners did. Something else you might like to look at, opposite the pulpit, is something called the Royal Place, a platform where the Emperor stood during services. It's decorated with all kinds of imperial regalia, such as a crown, a sword and a scepter, and then there's a curtain surrounding it on which is embroidered the two-headed eagle, which, of course, is the symbol of the Russian Empire. The cathedral became known as the Romanov Church because most of them are buried here and because... Requiem services were always held on their birthdays or name days or anniversaries of the day on which they died. So it really became a place where current members of the Romanov family would celebrate their family history and remember their ancestors. It was a tradition, for example, that although emperors were crowned in Moscow, they would then come to St. Petersburg and visit their parents' graves here in St. Peter and St. Paul. On the death of Peter the Great, A tradition was established for a great ceremony and procession in huge pomp and splendour accompanying the corpse of the emperor across the river to the cathedral for burial. So here, for example, is a description of what happened on the death of his daughter, the Empress Elizabeth. It's an eyewitness account written by Count Hard and quoted in Simon Dixon's book, Catherine the Great. So, quote, The coffin, placed on a sort of chariot, drawn by eight horses and adorned with black velvet festoons, was covered with a black cloth pall, richly trimmed with Spanish silver point lace. The canopy, made from the same materials, was carried by generals and senators, accompanied by several officers of the guards. The emperor followed immediately behind the coffin, wearing a large black cloak carried by twelve chamberlains, each holding a wax taper in his hand. Prince Georg of Holstein followed the emperor as his nearest relation, Then came the Prince of Holstein-Beck. The Empress followed also on foot, holding a burning taper and clad in a robe carried by all her maids of honour. Three hundred grenadiers brought up the rear of the procession. And then, from over a hundred years later, we have some writing from a book called Memoirs of a Revolutionist, written by Prince Kropotkin, who was a young page at court when the funeral was held of the Empress Alexandra, widow of Nicholas I. This is in 1860. And it's quoted at length in the anthology St. Petersburg, A Traveller's Reader. Prince Kropotkin describes the procession to arrive at the church crossing over the river, which he said contained scores of thousands of functionaries and also hundreds of clergy and choirs and how they stopped at every important street corner for bells to be rung and choirs to sing and military bands to play in order, as he puts it, quote, to make people believe that the immense crowds really mourned the loss of the Empress. 
He describes too how the body lay in state in the cathedral at the fortress. He tells us how he was one of the pages who had to keep watch over the body, having to, quote, rise in the night, dress in our court uniforms and walk through the dark and gloomy inner courts of the fortress to the cathedral, to the sound of the gloomy chime of the fortress bells. He talks about how he used to remember all the people who had died in the fortress, previous prisoners, and to wonder whether, quote, I in my turn shall not also have to join them one day or other. He's also left us quite a nice and slightly ironic description of the immense canopy over the coffin, which he describes thus, quote, A huge gilded crown rose above it, and from this crown an immense purple mantle, lined with ermine, hung towards the four thick pilasters which support the dome of the cathedral. It was impressive, but we boys soon made out that the crown was made of gilded cardboard and wood. The mantle was of velvet only in its lower part, while higher up it was red cotton, and the ermine lining was simply cotton flannelette or swan-down, to which black tails of squirrels had been sewn, while the escutcheons, which represented the arms of Russia, veiled with black crepe, were simple cardboard. But the crowds which were allowed at certain hours of the night to pass by the coffin, and to kiss in a hurry the gold brocade which covered it, surely had no time to closely examine the flannelette ermine or the cardboard escutcheons, and the desired theatrical effect was obtained even by such cheap means. Today there are 32 Romanov tombstones inside the cathedral. Perhaps the most visited ones would be that of Peter the Great, which is right at the front of the church, on the right of the altar, and the ones of the Romanovs, Nicholas and his wife Alexandra, which were moved there only on the 17th of July 1998, which was the 80th anniversary of their shooting. A ceremony was held, Romanov descendants of course came, including Prince Michael of Kent, who described the ceremony as, quote, very touching, a dignified occasion with a sense of finality. If you're at all interested in Romanov history or the history of St. Petersburg, I can't recommend too highly a visit to the cathedral because it's been at the centre of that story for over 300 years. The third building I wanted to mention isn't in the fortress complex. It's 30 miles outside St. Petersburg, overlooking the Gulf of Finland, and that is the Peterhof Palace. Peterhof, of course, means Peter's Court, and this is the building that Peter had built as a summer residence, something which, as he said himself, would be, quote, befitting to the very highest of monarchs. He'd seen royalty in Western Europe with their summer palaces, and he was determined to have the same. So he chose the site, and really, absolutely no expense was spared in bringing the materials which would make it the most splendid building. Here, for example, is Derek Wilson in his book, Peter the Great, describing the things that were brought to the site in order to glorify the palace. Quote, Cartloads and shiploads of rare, beautiful artefacts, paintings, tapestries, sculptures, silverware, gold and jewelled ornaments, including what came to be known as the Siberian collection of archaeological antiquities excavated from burial sites, furniture, clocks, porcelain, bronzes, marbles, chandeliers, carved panelling were constantly arriving in St. Petersburg for the adornment of the Tsar's residences. There's a paradox here, really. There's no doubt that Peter wanted this palace built as a sign of his own power and importance and also to impress the Western European monarchs that he'd been so impressed by. But actually, he himself had much simpler taste. He, for example, had a little building called Mont Plaisir, a cottage almost, built in the grounds, and he chose to spend a lot of his time there, rather than the sumptuous palace itself. 
Again, there's such an excess of splendiferousness that you really don't know where to begin. But Derek Wilson is quite interesting on perhaps what is the most well-known feature of the whole place, and that's the fountains. So here he is again in his book, Peter the Great. Quote, The fountain system, which remains the most memorable aspect of Peterhof for most visitors, was a creation of engineering genius. It was fed by a reservoir 13 kilometres away. 4,000 labourers were employed to dig the canal that brought water down to the palace. The pressure was sufficient to feed, eventually, 144 fountains without the aid of mechanical pumps. The gilded statuary depicted figures from classical legend but were replete with contemporary significance. Peter was portrayed as one of the heroes of old and the statue of the Gorgon was given the face of Charles XII. This glorious set piece was designed to be the first thing that guests would see when they sailed from the Baltic up the canal, which was dug up to the house, wide enough, in fact, for three sailing boats to be side by side, 500 metres long. So they would approach the palace from there and they would see then this stunning cascade and set of fountains. I very much enjoyed some descriptions of it, which I found in Colin Thubron's book, Among the Russians, and I can't resist reading you a couple of quotes from there. So here's the first one. The whole hillside has become a dizzying coup de théâtre. Beneath the hovering symmetry of the palace, the double stairway drops in a giant glistening steps among a hubbub of gilded gods and goddesses who blaze and shimmer between leaping and corkscrewing fountains. Never was there such a hillful of dribbling and spuming beasts and deities. I love that mix of impressed and yet dismissive. And here he is again a little later on. He describes the Samson fountain, which is the centrepiece of the whole thing. Quote, A monstrous gold Samson tears the jaws of a domesticated-looking lion, from whose stricken mouth a 62-foot jet of water roars skyward. Gilded fish flounder and spout around his feet. Nereids blow their watery conches. Dolphins spurt. Frogs gurgitate. Everything is puffing and spewing until at last, quiet at the foot of the hill, the water steals through a fountained corridor to the sea, where hydrofoils ply along the wooded slopes of the Gulf of Finland. All of this, of course, absolutely by design. It was a celebration of Russia's triumph over Sweden, or perhaps in Peter's mind, Peter's triumph over Sweden. And it's to be noted that the fountains were unveiled on the 25th anniversary of the victory of the battle against the Swedes at Poltava. Every now and then the grounds would be opened to the great unwashed from the city and they'd be invited in their hundreds or thousands to come and admire and see what their emperor had created. This was a tradition that went on into the next century. So here, for example, is a description of the grounds which comes from a book called The Russian Journals of Martha and Catherine Wilmot, quoted again in the anthology St. Petersburg, A Traveller's Reader. They were there between 1803 and 1808, and this is what they wrote about the park. We proceed to the gardens, which by this time began to be illuminated. Along every walk were festoons of little sparkling lamps, and the waterworks now were a perfect blaze of beauty, and threw out a diamond spray that sparkled in every direction. The palaces were illuminated, and in short, the entire scene was absolutely like enchantment. It sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Although we also know that in Peter's time, when he had guests, he would ply them with so much drink, starting with brandy in the coffee cups at breakfast and on through the day, that during the evening guests were often found wandering completely incapable and drunk through the grounds. OK, so thinking about going inside, where on earth do you start? There are 30 plus rooms, they're treasure stuffed, all of them, 
I read somewhere that there are 3,500 exhibits to be seen, and the palace's own guide says the following, quote, The palace halls are strikingly magnificent, painted ceilings, patterned parquet floors, a host of mirrors, and intricately twined gilded wood carving. Everything glitters and gleams in a dazzling display of luxury. So, where to begin? I've just picked out one or two rooms. I think the thing to do really is just wander around and gawp and be amazed. But don't miss the main staircase, because it's not just a way of getting up to the first floor. It is the most amazing construction, dating from 1755, designed by the Italian architect Rastrelli, who seems to get everywhere in St. Petersburg. 12 metres high, I've seen it described as a Baroque hymn of praise to the rule of Peter I's daughter, the Empress Elizabeth. It's quite amazing. It's gilded, it's got ceiling paintings, gilded wrought ironwork. It's just amazing. An amazing sweep from the ground floor up to the top floor. Places you might definitely take in on your itinerary. I think I'd recommend the ballroom, a room of grandeur and brilliance if ever I've seen one. Again, gilding everywhere. And a nice place to just stand and think about the receptions and the balls and the masquerades which took place there over the centuries especially when Elizabeth was empress. She reigned from 1741 to 61 because she was quite the live wire and absolutely loved dancing. I've got a description of a ball which was held in the very early 1800s, comes again from the Russian journals of Martha and Catherine Wilmot, and this is what they have to say about attending a ball in the time of Alexander I. We arrived at the palace at seven o'clock the rooms of which were all thrown open, and we met there such a crowd of people that we could scarcely advance. At length the Emperor and Empress, Alexander I and Elizaveta Alexievna, and their company, appeared, and a Polish dance was begun, the Emperor leading out my beautiful acquaintance, Madame Adoradov, and followed by, I dare say, sixty couples. It was simply a promenade by which I saw again and again every grandee who passed successively as close to me as they could well do. The Empress looked charming, and the affable manners which she and all the imperial family possess are quite delightful. There were two young grand duchesses present, and Martha and Catherine go on to describe what they were wearing. Quote, One of them had a curricle dress on, which was trimmed all round with diamonds, four rows making a band as broad as the sixpenny ribboned, their heads adorned in proportion. Judge how abundant precious stones must be here, for they are often more like a jeweller's shop than any adornment selected by good taste. Ouch. There are far too many rooms to mention, but just very briefly talk about the Chesney Hall, which is all decked out to extol the successes of Russian naval power, so ships and battles and whatnot all over the walls. And then there's a whole array of picture halls and boudoirs and dining rooms, dressing rooms, drawing rooms, etc, etc. I think have to make mention of the throne room, which is the largest hall in the palace. Again, stucco decorations, big crimson velvet throne at one end, with the portrait of Catherine the Great just behind it. She, I think, decorated this room and she chose that to go there. And then she chose portrait of Russian victories for some of the walls and also some of the other empresses, Catherine I, Anna and Elizabeth. They're all in paintings here, chosen by Catherine the Great, commissioned by her, in fact, from the artists. Just when you think it can't get any more splendid, you'll come to the state apartments, which, of course, are the little inner coterie of rooms that the emperor and empress used personally themselves. And of all the splendour in there, what I actually found the most interesting was the oak study, which belonged to Peter the Great. Oak panelled walls, a lovely view over the Baltic, 
things that actually belonged to him scattered about, some of his books, his travelling alarm clock, no less, and on the desk a book labelled Peter the Great's Decrees from 1714 to the 28th of January 1725. If when you come out of the palace you haven't seen quite enough splendour, then you could always consider going to the church pavilion, which is built onto the side of the palace itself. Yet more gold, vast quantities of gold. Have a look at the outside as well, with its traditional five domes. And if you want to remember just one event which took place in this building, I think I would recommend the baptism of the last Tsar's son. So Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra brought their baby son Alexei here on the 11th of August 1904. We actually have a diary entry written by Nicholas on that day in which he describes it as follows, quote, The memorial day of baptism of our dear son. The morning was bright and warm. Golden carriages appeared in front of the house. And we know that their numerous guests attended. There was a very lavish ceremony and the whole thing ended in a gun salute with 301 salvos. All very splendid, all very sad when you consider that that baby grew up to be the doomed Tsarevich Alexei who suffered from haemophilia throughout his childhood and died along with his four sisters and parents in a shooting in Ekaterinenberg just 13 years after his baptism. Just as a postscript, I'd like to mention that Peterhof was occupied for three years during World War II by Nazi soldiers. It was very badly bombed and in fact in 1944 Stalin himself had it bombed because he had heard that Hitler had a plan of holding a victory celebration there and he wasn't having that. So it was very nearly destroyed really and what you see today is then mostly a rebuilding. But the contents are the real thing because they had all been hidden away as the war began and they survived. So although the outside is a reconstruction, the inside are the things that the families over the centuries actually did use. So, how to sum up Peterhof? I saw it described, I think, in the Eyewitness Guide as, quote, a perfect expression of triumphalism, and you certainly can't argue with that. I think it's also, of course, for us today, just an example of the opulence which eventually led to the downfall of the whole empire. The idea of living in such splendour at the expense of so many people and fetching the serfs in once or twice a year to wander about the fairy-lit woodlands doesn't chime at all, does it, with our sensibilities. I think most of all it's probably a, a testament to Peter. It's his show of strength, his show of splendour, his desire to impress. And I especially like the fact that despite all of those things, he himself didn't spend that many nights in the palace itself, choosing rather to entertain his guests in his much smaller scale almost cottage in the grounds, the little building called Mont Plaisir. What you certainly can say is that Peterhof today is one of St Petersburg's absolute top attractions. If you go, you need to be ready for a busy day out, a lot of queuing. We found at least that if you don't speak Russian, the whole thing's quite mysterious. It was quite difficult to work out where to buy what, where to wait, where to queue, what to do with those weird shoes they made us wear on our way round, etc. But I wouldn't have missed it for the world, it's simply got to be seen. And you get a boat trip, you get a wander around those lovely grounds and a look at the history of three centuries worth of ups and downs. So let's leave that there. That's almost the end of this episode. Just wanted to mention that the next episode is going to feature the other must-go-to splendid palace just outside St Petersburg, namely the Catherine Palace. I'm going to use that as a framework to talk about the three empresses who are most connected with it, which would be Catherine I, Peter's wife, who had it built as a surprise for him, and then their only surviving daughter, the Empress Elizabeth, 
and the German girl who married Elizabeth's nephew and eventually had him done away with and became Empress herself and ruled under the name of Catherine the Great. So, all of that to look forward to. For the moment, we'd just like to thank you very much for listening. Spasibo. And to wish you goodbye in what I think is the Russian for goodbye, Dosvidanya. <laughs>